Hello. This is a quick message from the production team. I hope you are enjoying the Illegally Speaking podcast. Due to the current COVID-19 link crisis, the next few episodes will be recorded through our video communication software. Thanks for your understanding and do stay safe. The episode will now begin. Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast, powered by Kasum Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Sophie Van Hegen, an employment partner at GQ Littler. So welcome, Sophie. Hi, Rob. Thanks very much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, I think we were talking just off air that you uh, you haven't seen it before, but as you may or may not know, uh, our customary question on the, uh, the Legally Speaking podcast is, is around suits. So uh, on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the, the hit series suits from what you've heard? Um, I, as I said, yes, I haven't ever seen an episode before, so I'm going to take a wild guess of about four out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's probably a very sound and and, and safe uh, a safe guess from what we've had from lots of people who've been in the industry who have said that. So, um, you know, it's a real real pleasure to have you on. Um, you, you've achieved such a tremendous amount um, throughout your your legal career, which we're we're definitely going to be talking about on today's episode. But let's sort of take it back to the to the start. Did you always want to be a, a lawyer? I decided I wanted to be a lawyer at a geekly early age. Um, there was a programme for for people of my age um, in the 90s called Kavanaugh QC, um, which as a teenager, I became rather addicted to watching. Um, and it was about a, a barrister, a criminal barrister standing up and uh, defending clients. And I remember watching that when I was about 14, 15 and thinking, that looks like quite a cool job, standing up, making arguments for one side or the other. Um, I quite like the look of that. And it kind of, it went from there, really. Um, I decided that um, I thought I would be interested in law. By the time I got to sixth form, I was very clear that I wanted to study law at university. And it, it carried on from there, essentially. Yeah, well, well great. And you went to, to Cambridge. How did you find your, your time there? Uh, I loved studying there. Um, I think doing a law degree there was pretty intense, but I think most law degrees are quite intense compared to some of the other subjects. So it was a question of working very hard and working very intensely, but that sets you up well for a career in private practice, I think, for dealing with uh, client demands and dealing with intense periods of working. It was also a really formative experience. It really made me more confident. It made me very focused and driven with where I wanted to go with my career. So it was an amazing experience. I, I loved being there. Great. And then from, from, from sort of Cambridge, you successfully joined Linklaters, right? Do you want to sort of tell us about your time there? And then secondly, why you chose to, to specialise in employment? Sure. Um, so uh, in the second year of my law degree, I did what everybody else did, which was to apply for lots of vacation schemes. And I managed to get two, one being at a US firm and the other being at Linklaters. So off I trotted in the summer holiday between my second and third year for a month's vacation scheme at Linklaters. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was a fantastic firm. I could see that um, if I could get a training contract there, 
I would have amazing opportunities to work on really high profile work, to be part of one of the biggest, most successful law firms in the world. So I applied for a training contract at the end of that vacation scheme and luckily got it. Um, And I duly started my training contract there in 2006. Uh, In terms of employment law, uh, you don't tend to start a training contract at Linklaters with aspirations of being an employment lawyer. You tend to uh, more be planning to end up being in one of the big engines of the firm, such as corporate or finance. But I did study employment law uh, as one of my papers in my third year, and I always found it academically very interesting. And I thought, okay, I'd like to get a seat in employment law during my training contract, which I was lucky enough to do. And I think the thing that really appealed to me as an employment lawyer in the city was that you were still getting the black letter law experience. I've I've always enjoyed the technical side of being a lawyer. Um, You still get to take part in some much bigger matters. So at Linklaters, that meant being part of some of the big deals and transactions, as well as big high court cases. But I also liked the the more human elements of being an employment lawyer, that you are actually dealing with people and their jobs and the issues that they come up with at work. So for me, it gave the best combination of work while still being a, a lawyer in the city, which you know is still one of the big hubs of our legal services industry in the UK. So those are all the factors that led to me joining Linklaters and then ultimately deciding that I really wanted to be an employment lawyer. Yeah, great. And, you know, you've done you've done so much in the uh, the, the world of employment. Maybe for people listening in, do you want to sort of tell a bit more about the, the, the breadth of your practice and, and how much you do within the employment space generally? Sure. So, um, when I was at Linklaters, I um, obviously did quite a lot of corporate support work and I worked on some very large transactions there. But I was also lucky enough there to get some exposure to some real high value litigation. So I was the lead associate on um, a multi-million pound bonus claim that went to a five-week high court trial um, that was actual in Dresdner Climewalt. And that really gave me the taste for employment litigation, particularly in the high court world. So when I moved on to GQ Littler, that was something that I very much wanted to continue and have been lucky enough to continue. So I would say that now my practice consists of uh, a lot of litigation, particularly on the high court side, which for an employment lawyer means bonus disputes, restrictive covenant issues, and also team moves. But I also do that alongside a full raft of advisory work uh, and something that I'm increasingly focusing on uh, in the last couple of years by by virtue of my financial services clients is the interaction between uh, employment law and the senior manager's certification regime that was rolled out for banks a few years ago, but as of December last year also got rolled out to solo regulated firms. So I'd say those are my two particular areas of interest and specialism. The regulatory piece for the financial services sector in terms of its employment law interaction, but then also the high value complex employment litigation. Yeah. 
And again, I'm, you know, I'm very impressed by everything you've achieved. And just to go back a step, you obviously spent, you know, six wonderful years with with Linklaters, and then you, you you touched on it there and where you're currently with GQ Littler in terms of, you know, joining them as a senior associate. Do you want to maybe explain, um, having, you know, trained, been with a magic circle firm, moving to a firm like GQ Littler, your your experiences and perhaps what you found in terms of some similarities and, and certain differences as as, as well. Sure. So, yes, I joined uh, GQ Littler back in 2012 when the firm was only two years old. Uh, And lots of people ask me, well, why on earth did you go from a magic circle firm to joining a two-year-old startup? And the answer is quite simple. Uh, The G and the Q are John Gilligan and Paul Quain, who are the two founding partners. And I had worked with both of them at Linklaters, but particularly Paul. Paul, many years ago, was my trainee supervisor when I was in the employment team there. And I always uh, got on very well with him when we were at Linklaters together. I'd worked with him a lot. And I was always very interested in his decision to leave to set up an employment boutique. So I'd kept an eye on how they were developing. And I could see that they were doing something different and something exciting. So that is why I basically decided to take a leap of faith when they were two years old because I thought okay they've survived two years they must be doing okay and I thought actually I was at a stage in my career where I was um, coming up for that promotion to senior associate and I was very conscious of what lots of recruiters um, were always telling me which Rob may know (laughs) better than me whether this is still true that that two to four PQE is a a very prime window for moving if you do want to move uh, firms and so I thought actually where I am in my life and my career at the moment I think this is the the right time for me to go across and I've, I've never really looked back in Compared to how the firm was when I joined and where it is now, they're, they're completely different. It's like comparing day and night. Um, and we're obviously now a, a much bigger team in London. And we're also part of a, a much bigger organization in terms of Littler Global. In terms of what things I found different, well, I mean, it, it was everything from uh, when I first joined GQ, we were in serviced offices where you had to pay money to... Uh, get the bulk photocopier to work out in the shared areas. I'm pleased to say that we now have our own much bigger offices with (laughs) fully functioning (laughs) photocopiers. I went from a a full service firm to an employment boutique, a full service traditional law firm with, with lots of very big support teams to a much leaner support uh, team model. But also um, I think the advantage of going and becoming part of the team that was the firm and is the driver of the revenue of the firm. Um, I think in a lot of full service firms, and I I may be wrong, employment lawyers don't have the same input into the strategic direction of the firm. And one of the things I really like about the boutique model as an employment lawyer is that means you get a lot more influence and say into how the business develops, which when you combine it with a a relatively new business where you're not tied up in a bigger bureaucracy. That's meant that we've been able to uh, move quite nimbly and quickly to uh, develop the firm in the direction that we want to uh, with, with relatively few constraints. 
Yeah. So I think in terms of people listening in then to take away from that, I think it was, you know, it was it was a very measured, um, shall you say, risk, you know, joining you know the firm two years in, but you'd had kind of trust built up and you knew of the people, you know, and respected and trusted the partners that you would be joining. Um, and I think that's really good insights for people to sort of take away. Um, you know, if you're going to make a move and, you know, you're potentially going to take that step, then, you know, if you, if you do as much due diligence or you're kind of using trusted networks, that's always going to help. And, you know, I, I guess that trust and has always been sort of put in you, vice versa, as well as you were successfully you successfully made partner with the firm quite quite soon on after after joining, which is obviously testament to all the work that you did. Do you want to sort of talk about that journey in a boutique to making partnership? Sure. So I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that uh, the transition and the the business case to moving up to partner can be a little easier than at the full service traditional law firms we're not constrained by having enforced ratios of partners to non-partners I think uh, it was it was two things my my initial promotion came about on the basis of shoring up the levels of primarily fee earning focused partners so that uh, certain of equity partners could more focus on the running of the business. That's obviously developed and changed over time the longer that I've been a partner as I've taken on management responsibilities. I think uh, it was also, I had been able to demonstrate that I could run matters, I could run larger matters, I could supervise teams of more junior lawyers. So it was the, it was a promotion that came um, as soon as I returned from my first maternity leave actually which hopefully is also a a reassuring message to get out there Um, and it also meant that I became the first female partner at our firm and it was a transition that I think was well supported within the team. Uh, The existing partners were very keen to support my transition into that more senior role and that also happened at the same time as I, as my decision to go part-time. So there were lots of changes that happened at the same time when that promotion came about. But I think it's, it's panned out quite well. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I think it was, a, it was a different set of circumstances because I was being promoted when the firm was still growing and as it continues to do so now. Uh, but without them having the big constraints of very formal, prescriptive uh, partnership processes that a lot of the bigger, more traditional law firms have. And that's just such a wonderful case study, you know, outlining your journey there, particularly within a boutique, because you have been able to, you know, successfully, you know, have, have a young family as, as well as sort of hit the, the optimal goal, which everyone strives to achieve, you know, typically of partnership. And hopefully that inspires lots of people that, you know, if you get into the right environment, you work hard and you facilitate the right plan, um, you know, it, it is very achievable. So that, that really does um, highlight that, it, that it's out there and successful people can, can emulate what you've done, which is highly, highly successful. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. In terms of the times that we're living at the moment, I guess, you know, most people will be shouting at me, I'm sure, to say, come on, let's talk about, thing, you know, coronavirus and, and all things employment. So, um, you know, this is not a, a legal kind of, a, you know, hour of advice, but come on, let, let's talk about, obviously, the, the current pandemic, which is a, you know, a crisis that we're in, unfortunately. Do you, do you want to maybe share a bit more about your practice and, and what 
what you're seeing in terms of certain trends as a result of the, the government's recent and ongoing announcements? Sure. So I think it's fair to say that employment lawyers, um, our market is often counter-cyclical. So when, when the world starts to face a huge crisis like the one we're going through at the moment, we, we certainly see quite a big flurry of, of needs from our clients while they scramble around working out what the best thing to do is for their business, but also for their workforces. Lots of clients, particularly those in the sectors that have been most sharply impacted, such as retail and hospitality, had were already thinking very quickly about whether what measures they could take essentially to cut their staff costs as quickly as possible. So we saw lots of clients very quickly looking at whether there were redundancy measures they could take, but also what alternatives they could take to redundancy, such as uh, asking people to take unpaid leave, asking people, people to reduce their hours or reduce their salary, delaying salary increases, and also asking people to go on a period of holiday just to, to get them through those initial weeks. The landscape changed significantly 10 days ago when the government then announced the coronavirus job retention scheme under which their employers can now furlough employees and, sorry, essentially pay them 80% of their salary or up to £2,500 a month in order to keep them in employment, but essentially say, go home, don't do any work and hopefully reduce the numbers of redundancies. So particularly the last week and a half, we have seen an awful lot of inquiries around that uh, because I think everyone hopes that the economy will recover quite quickly once the restrictions are lifted. So people are very much looking into furlough as an option where they essentially are keeping their employees, albeit that they are not working, and therefore they are hopefully going to be able to come back to work as soon as the restrictions are relaxed and the economy gets going again. So there's been all sorts of uh, options that people have been exploring. And I think it will be interesting to see because at the moment the furlough scheme is going to run until the end of May. I know over the weekend there's been talk about there being a six-month period before life gets back to normal how that scheme will be reviewed at the end of May if we are still in the lockdown period that we are at the moment or if we are still in very much a very muted level of economic activity such that employers don't yet have the work for those staff to come back to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is still a very much a high level of, of uncertainty. And, and as you say, you touched on there, the sort of six month, you know, potentially even longer, uh, they say, in terms of, uh, you know, back to what we might deem the, the, the norm. I guess for, you know, generally employers thinking about um, COVID-19 in terms of sort of, you know, policies and, and, and sort of bringing them out and, and, and driving them out. Is there anything you, you've seen or what employers maybe should be thinking about that they hadn't historically had to think about in terms of um, prior to all of this? So lots of employers who had never really had practices of working from home have had to very quickly uh, get large amounts of people effectively working from home. That's been uh, quite an interesting 
uh, development from practical issues such as getting enough laptops for for their staff. That's been made more complicated, would you believe it, by the factories in China that made make a lot of the components for those laptops having been shut for a, a while, alongside the whole of the world looking to get more and more of their staff working from home leading to serious laptop shortages and and what do you do with your staff if you can't yet get them a laptop but you know you're going to get them one in two weeks do you give them special leave do you say you need to be placed on holiday so there's been practical issue of getting staff working from home there's also been a second issue about working out who you do still really need to come into the office and how do you manage those staff understandably feeling anxious about still having to travel into the office. Uh, The FCA uh, indicated a few weeks ago that certain regulated persons would fall into the key worker category. So lots of our financial services firm clients have had an interesting issue to consider in terms of people who you wouldn't necessarily automatically think would need to be going into the office, working out who falls into that bucket. Also, what do you do with the people who you who can't work from home? So the people who work in your post room, the people who work in your print room. I think the the furlough scheme is being looked at very closely for those categories of people. It's thrown up so many HR questions because you are rolling out very wide changes to your workforce. And then on top of that, you're layering whether you actually need to look at cost-saving measures for your business in the meantime. So it's really touching upon lots of policies, whether that's your working from home policy, whether it's your holiday policy. Are you going to make people still take holiday while we're in this lockdown period? Are you going to let people roll over more holiday? And then it also impacts your your business as usual things. So we've had uh, uh, companies ask us, well, this person was being performance managed. Can we carry on that performance management process while we're all working remotely? And so we're seeing lots of companies having to get used to running meetings such as that, which they would normally be running very much in person, switching to running those by video. So it really is touching upon every aspect of, of people's working lives. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's so many great things you've just touched on there. And I know there's even more um, to, to go in, but it, it, it hopefully, you know, as, as, as a result of all of this, um, you know, people will will get through it. The the one thing I know, particularly around GQ Litter as well, as you are, a, you know, your boutique firm, but you're a human in, in terms of your approach. And you are also sort of a firm that, that promotes sort of flexible, agile working as well is great. But I was going to ask a question more generally for the legal sector. Um, you know, the legal sector is has had a bit of a bashing for not being very flexible um, and not necessarily, you know, some firms allowing flexible working where it potentially could be given. Do you think as a result of all of this um, happening and law firms, you know, ultimately having to function remotely, that this will kind of put the legal sector a a step further forward in terms of that, that sort of offering? I certainly hope so. I mean, yes, as you say, GQ Littler, we have have always been quite ahead of the curve in terms of agile working and we felt slightly smug a couple of weeks ago because it meant <laughs> that we were we found the transition to having our whole team working from home 
much easier because we already had the, the hardware in place to enable that to happen. And we were just used culturally to most people working from home at least one day a week, but lots of our team worked from home two or three days a week ordinarily. I've been quite surprised at the number of reports I've heard of law firms who had not had any regular home working arrangements at all, so have had to scrabble around quite frantically to to get those systems in place. Although I think that I, that should be a, a minority because I think most firms in the city at least had had moved to a pattern of of generally encouraging working from home one day a week. So yes, I would hope for the firms that had previously been more resistant to working from home at all, that they will see that it can be done and it can be done effectively. So I very much hope that that will change mindsets and encourage that. I think the interesting thing also is in terms of the other side of flexible working, one of the key other sides of flexible working being part-time working and whether the crisis that we're in at the moment sees greater greater understanding of that because I think that is still the thing that is difficult in private practice and that some teams do really struggle with making work and I think that is a key issue to be addressed in terms of seeing more women in more senior roles in private practice, seeing that happen and actually happen effectively and and people genuinely working part-time and not just squashing a full-time job into part-time hours, which so often seems to be the occupational hazard of trying to work part-time in private practice. So yes, I think lots of things are going to be tested during this time. And I certainly hope it will result in some longer term changes for the better uh, when we do all get back to normal, whenever that may be. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's hope, uh, you know, we're all praying that it'll be, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. And I guess that you talked about mindset there. And as a partner of a a law firm, you know, you're in a leadership position. And lots of people have been saying, you know, well, you know, how how do you keep your your colleagues motivated? You know, at times like this, it is quite hard for certain people to stay positive, to stay as productive. You know, people are talking about staying match fit, you know, almost the work from home to keep yourself operationing as you would in, in an office environment. Do you have any tips as a partner or anything you do within the firm generally in terms of keeping that team spirit nice and high? Sure. So at the moment, um, we are having a a morning call Monday to Friday every morning, which um, is by video for everyone to just check in, people to ask if they have any questions. Uh, Just we are also having a weekly happy hour at five o'clock for a more lighthearted discussion and there have definitely been uh, beers and gin and tonics on on view <laughs> during that those video calls. And but the other thing I, I have HR responsibility within our firm, and one of the things I've also been very keen to ensure we keep an eye on is is people's individual well being and and how they are coping because this is obviously a, a difficult time for everybody. So I'm also having one to one video chats with everyone at. at least once a fortnight just to really say you know how are you how are you finding it 
are you, is work okay? Are you managing with work okay? Is there anything worrying you? Just to try and encourage people to be open and communicate as possible. Because I think that's the key thing with everyone working in different locations to make people feel that they can still say if something is causing them issues. Because the the downside of of this is that you can't just turn around in the office and say to somebody, can we just go and get a coffee or can we have a few minutes next door to have a chat on a more private level? So I think as a team, we are very much trying to put proactive steps in place to actively monitor people and actively check in with people so that we don't have people individually sort of going to ground and and letting things get on top of them. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I think even more so whether you you, you agree with this in terms of, you know, the, the, the mental health, um, you know, first aid with, with people talking about in terms of having mental health officers becoming almost, you know, as standard rather than options, um, I think is going to be increasing more and more as, as a result of, of, of this too, because I think you've just got to put people's well-being first. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's a difficult time, Um for everybody personally, particularly given that we don't know how long this situation is going to go on for. So the more we can do to pull together and support each other, the better, I think, at the moment. And, you know, on a more, a more positive note, Sophie, when, when business is, is, is normal, you know, you are, you know, a, a real success story um, in terms of everything you've achieved from sort of, you know, strong academics through to a magic circle firm, through to a top boutique in your field, and, you know, making partnership as well as sort of running family life. You know, what, what tips would you give to perhaps more junior people, aspirational lawyers living um, listening in to what practical steps they may need to take to, to try and emulate your successes? <laughs> Well, um, I think having drive and focus has always helped me throughout my career. I was very clear at the beginning that I really wanted to go to a, a big firm if I could get a job at a, a really big firm and, and take all the opportunities that offered to me. But to keep checking in with yourself and thinking, you know, where is my career at the moment? Where do I want it to go? And and what kind of things do I need to do to to get to the next level but I think also as you become more senior also stepping back and putting boundaries between your career and your personal life which I think becomes all the more critical when you do decide to have a family and continue your career as a lawyer I think when I was junior I found it very difficult to say no either internally or externally and the more senior you get, the more important it is to have the confidence to put limits on what you can do professionally so that you are still giving your best in your career, but you are also preserving something of yourself for your personal life and for your family commitments so that you don't end up in the situation where you just feel, which I think is quite easy to happen as a lawyer in the city that that your life is your job and that something has to give because I think that is still too often the problem particularly for women coming up to the senior ranks that when they have children they they feel that it becomes a choice between their job and their home life and I really think if if you can put 
boundaries between your work and your home life. And you also can work in a team where you have a team that's supportive of you doing that. That is a key way of keeping your career going and keeping your career progressing. And that's certainly something that I found that have found that I've been lucky enough to have at GQ Litter of the, the partnership and the whole team have always been very supportive of me working part-time as as have my clients and, and also not not being fearful to to be upfront with your clients that you do have a life outside the law. I think I think lawyers are very often frightened to let clients see that they are not just at their desk 24-7, always ready. And, and clients, I think, generally respect that because most clients are in a similar situation trying to juggle different areas of their life. So I think work hard, be driven and focus, but also do, do have the confidence to put boundaries in between your work life and your personal life I think those are all key things that have really helped me and guide me through guided me through my career great stuff and of course listen to the lady speaking podcast you know just to get regular absolutely (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and and Sophie listen it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the the show today I think all of your 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 journey your insights and also touching on coronavirus I'm sure there's lots of helpful content there for our listeners listening in so thank you so much for your your time it's been an absolute pleasure and wishing you lots of continued success and no doubt we'll we'll see you feature on here again in the future Thank you very much for having me. It's been uh, really interesting to have a discussion and I I hope you and all your listeners um, do get through this difficult spell okay and I look forward to meeting you and and your your listeners when we get back to normal. Great stuff. Many thanks. Cheers, Sophie. Thank you.